You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. I pray that God uses this message to touch your heart. Sukkot is uh, part of one of the seven Levitical festivals that we find in the book of Leviticus. And uh, and Bill did a good job with uh, getting um, talking about this. A little bit, and he, and you know, if, if we look at these seven feasts, we could also include this, the regular weekly Sabbath. But the seven feasts include the three fall feasts, which we've been celebrating, which we, we tend to do here look at the, the fall feasts together Rosh Hashanah, which is the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. By the way, Rosh Hashanah literally means the head of the year, so it is the Jewish New Year, and Sukkot is the Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll look at today. The four spring feasts we have are the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, and Shavuot, or Pentecost, which is the Feast of Weeks. So those are our seven feasts. Three of those feasts, by the way, are feasts of gathering or pilgrimage feasts, and those are Sukkot, Passover, and Pentecost. And we'll see today how Jesus uses that opportunity when everyone is gathered in Israel together in Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts together. I always say that there are five purposes of the feast, and they're in here throughout all these feasts. In fact, the Jewish people will say that these are the five purposes as well. So the five purposes, one is to celebrate an attribute of God. Secondly is to memorialize a historical event. So all of these feasts point to something in Israel's history. Thirdly, just as our holidays have a solidify a culture for us, it's the same for God's people. These build a culture around these, these different days. So dwelling in the booths, for example, is part of their culture. Even those, by the way, who are secular Jews, who don't believe even in a God, they, they will celebrate these feasts as a way of um, having a more uh, intentional culture and solidifying their, their Jewish roots. Fourthly, is to reveal the Messiah and his fulfillment. And again, I don't say this just as a believer, that Jesus is the fulfillment. Jewish people as well will tell you that when the Messiah comes, he will fulfill this feast. And also, we will agree with the Jewish people that these point to something that have to do with the end times. So, if we look at these, um, these five purposes and we kind of look at it from where we've been in the past couple of weeks, as Bill um, talked about Rosh Hashanah, we saw that God is creator because his, um, traditionally, Rosh Hashanah is, to believe, is believed to be the beginning of the creation of the world. But not only that, it's also God's provision, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. And we see that because Rosh Hashanah is the celebration of God providing Abraham the ram so he would not have to sacrifice his son Isaac. Thirdly, if we look at the culture, it's the Jewish New Year, as we said. And as far as the messianic fulfillment, as Bill pointed out, there is strong evidence to suggest that Rosh Hashanah marks the birth of Jesus, our Messiah. And fifthly, as we saw um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when it talks about the, the blast of the trumpet, right? That then, then the Lord will come and those who are dead in Christ will rise first. Many refer to that as the rapture. So there's lots of neat correlations that we see in these, in these feasts. And I always say that they're markers for these events. If we look at Yom Kippur, 
we saw that God is both just, but also that he is merciful. And he is merciful in that he provided a way to have interaction with his people. And so the historical significance of Yom Kippur is that we remember Aaron going into the, the Holy of Holies to put the blood sacrifice on the mercy seat of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. For God's people, this is a day of atonement. It's the holiest day of the year. And it's, it's a day marked for pa- uh, fasting and prayer. But it also has extreme significance and correlation with Jesus himself. Because at the crucifixion, we saw that the curtain separating the holy place and the most holy place was torn into two. Signifying that no longer would we need to go into the Holy of Holies once a year to make a sacrifice. As I mentioned earlier, Paul in Romans 3 says that God has made Jesus a public propitiation or mercy seat for our sins. And lastly, if we look at the end times, this, um, there's some different ideas about the, the fulfillment of Yom Kippur, but the Jewish people believe that it's the, mark, it's the time of judgment. That at that day, there will be those who are written in the book of life will be saved, and those who are not will be condemned. We sort of have a similar idea uh, that we get from Revelation, and that will be a day when many will stand before the Lord, and he will say, I didn't know you, or I knew you, come into paradise. So in a sense, there is still that idea of justice and mercy. And today we're going to take a look at Sukkot. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 23 where we see the festival of Sukkot. And we're going to begin in verse 33. Uh, Chapter 23 is filled with all of the different festivals. The festivals of the Lord. And starting with verse 33, we'll take a look at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month of the Lord's festival, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly, so do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the uh, closing special assembly. Do no regular work. We're going to skip down to verse 39. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, so this is the month of Tishri, and I think it was Wednesday night was the 15th uh, evening and morning, so Wednesday night began the, the 15th day. So he says, so beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival of the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day is also a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day you are... Um, to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival of the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So there's a number of facets to the Feast of Sukkot, but obviously the, the more prominent one, think that the thing that we remember, the thing that is very obvious to us, the, the tabernacle or the booth, is a reminder that 
Israel lived in temporary shelters. And by the way, the, the tabernacle, when we say the Feast of Tabernacles, does not refer to the main tabernacle. It's sort of a misnomer. That it's actually, the, a, better, a better translation would be the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tents, or the Feast of Shelters, or something like that. So, so Jewish people, very common to celebrate this, you know, by building a tent, putting some, some branches and things like that. It's our yearly pruning, you know, you know, just take the trimmings and put it on top of your, your booth. And you get kind of fancy with this. You can go all kind of Boy Scout crazy on this. And it's great, too. It, it's, it's great unless you live somewhere north like Russia or Wisconsin or Minnesota or something like that. Because depending on when Sukkot happens, it could happen late in the fall and it could be awfully cold. If you live in an apartment complex, typically you use your, your balcony to build your sukkah. Or if you, and if you've been into uh, major cities where there's a heavy Jewish population like New York or uh, Philadelphia, it's very common to see the sukkahs built on the side of, of the apartment buildings. And you get kind of crazy with this too. So you can, uh, you can have even a modular sukkah if you want, and put it on wheels and... I would love to see the Ikea sukkah. That's what I'm waiting to see. You can even make it pretty portable and small with like a little tent. And uh, you know what? You can even make a business out of this and just have sukkah deliveries. And uh, if you want to get some exercise, this be my way of doing it right here. Just put, it, put it on your bike. <laughs> so sukkah is, or sukkot is a time of, of gathering with family, and it was interesting because I was traveling with, um, I was traveling one year during the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was interesting to see all of the Jewish Orthodox men traveling. They were wearing their, their hat and their suit, and they were carrying their lulav, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But they were going home because this, was, this is a, an important feast. It's a time to be home with your family, um, or even in Jerusalem if you can, and to live in the, the tent together and to celebrate the Lord's provision. So if we look at our chart again, and we look at Sukkot, we see that it, the correlation is that God dwells with his people. He tabernacles with them. The historical significance is that it, it, it marks Israel wandering in the, in the wilderness and God's provision for them. And this is a time of gathering for the Jewish people and living together in the booths. So what about the messianic correlation? I talked a little bit about this during communion, but this is a fascinating. I think the one who brings it out the most is the writer John. I love the book of John. He is my favorite. It is my favorite of the Gospels. John is very different than the synoptic Gospels. He takes a very different approach in the way that he writes. But there are so many fascinating things. And it's interesting to me because John is considered a Gospel for Gentiles, basically. But there are a lot of Jewish um, feasts in there, a lot of intertwining with Jewish culture that we see prominently in the book of John, which I really appreciate. So in John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then in verse 14, he says this, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. Well, the one thing I love about John, do you ever make up words? You know, we tend to take nouns and turn them into verbs. John does the same thing, and he does it with this word. He made his dwelling, and there's the Greek word, and it literally means he tabernacled. And John is the only one who uses this. He's the only one to employ it. He does it in the book of John as well as the book of Revelation. So another thing that we see in in the festival of Sukkot is that in Jesus' time, and Josephus writes about this, Jerusalem had this huge celebration. In fact, Josephus says, if you've never been to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, you haven't seen anything. And and the torch, there would be giant torches that were uh, lit on fire. You could see them for miles and miles and miles. And then the priests would, they would get up on the last day, and the last day was like the, the big finale. And the last day, the priests would get up and they would pour, they had this water libation ceremony. So they'd take these, these, this water and, and go up to the top of this giant funnel and pour the water. And then they, they'd also pour wine and the two would mix together. And it was this celebration of God's provision and, and, um, and all of that. So in John chapter 7, John records for us that Jesus was at Jerusalem or he was in Jerusalem for the festival of tabernacles. If you want to follow me, um, I'm in verse 16 in John chapter 7. See, Jesus says before, he says to his disciples, I'm not going to Jerusalem for the feast. And the reason he says that is because, um, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to kill him. So, but, so he, he tells them, no, I'm not going, you go ahead, they go ahead, and Jesus s- kind of sneaks into Jerusalem without them knowing. So, There are three occasions in this passage in John chapter 7 where Jesus kind of makes himself known there. He comes out of hiding and he he addresses the crowd. One is in verse 16. He says, Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does not gain, does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? So Jesus makes this connection with Moses and the law. And they would have got, you know, here they are, they're celebrating um, Israel being in the wilderness, and they're celebrating the giving of the law, and all of that, and Jesus makes that connection. I am the one who comes from God. I am the one who obeys my Father. Going down to verse 28, Jesus gets into another conversation. He says, Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. And one of the greatest things, I think, is in verse 37, because it says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, so this is when the the torches are happening and the water libation is happening, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let everyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Isn't that really neat? So when when we see that, we see Jesus there in the temple when they're doing this water libation ceremony and Jesus stands up, I am the living water. Well, another aspect of Sukkot is the four species, which is this lulav. It's, the, it's kind of taking together the palm branch and some of the other things. And all of them have a significant, uh, an individual significance to them. And when they're combined, it means something else as well. And during Sukkot, 
what they'll tend to do is have this wonderful celebration where they bring out the Torah, the Old Testament scroll, which you can kind of see there, and they'll dance around it. And one of the things that they, they do is they, you know, they wave these, these palm branches and they say, Hoshana, God save us. Well, I think you can automatically see the connection there. That on Passover, just before Passover, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, there they surrounded him and welcomed him and waved the palm branch and said, Hoshana, Barakabah, Hashem, Adonai. God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Isn't that neat? So instead of, instead of circling around the written word of God, here they're circling around the incarnate word of God. So if we look again at our chart, we see very clearly that Jesus was the fulfillment of Sukkot in his incarnation, in his claim to be the living water and to provide the living water and through his triumphant entry. Well, what about the end times? What do we see here? In Revelation chapter 7, if you want to turn with me there, John sees this tremendous vision and he sees these people entering into heaven And it begins, he sees, um, first he sees 12,000 from every tribe. So 144,000 Jewish believers in Jesus. And then in verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people, and language. So John sees two things. He sees two groups of people. For all those people who say, oh, there's only 144,000, that's not true. He sees two groups. He sees the 144,000 Jewish believers, and he sees a multitude from every tribe and every ton and every nation that he can't count standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. And they cried out in a loud voice, Hoshana, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So we see here a group of people, Jews and Gentiles, no one can count how many of these people are, surrounding the throne of God, waving palm branches. So as Sukkot um, initially was a celebration around the written word of God, we see its fulfillment in that people surrounded the incarnate word of God and soon, one day, we'll be together surrounding the throne of God, waving our palm branches and saying, Hoshana, God save us. Salvation belongs to our God. Isn't that neat? Kind of neat to see, isn't it? So John continues. He says, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? John answered, Sir, you know. Then the elder says, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear 
from their eyes. So once again, we see it all come full circle. In fact, John again employs that word. When he says, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence, it is again the verb, he will tabernacle with them. So John wants us to get a very clear image of what is happening here. Just as the farmers during Sukkot, uh, just as Sukkot is a celebration of the harvest and, and the, the bringing of the wheat and, the, and all of these things, so one day God will harvest his people and they will be with him and God will tabernacle with them forever. So we see that Sukkot reminds us that God dwells with his people. It re, it's a celebration, a remembering of Israel wandering in the wilderness and God's provision for them. It's a time of gathering for God's people, and they live in booths. We see this celebration through the Messiah in the incarnation, the water libation, that he is the living water, and also he is the one who has entered triumphantly to save his people. And lastly, it points to the end times in that the Lord gathers and tabernacles with his people forever. Kind of neat to see, isn't it? Well, I do want to focus just for a few minutes um, on the end times. And I'm not really someone who gets involved too much with the end times. You don't see me going around predicting dates like May 21st or anything like that. Uh, Because most people who do that have been, well, all people who have done that have been proven wrong over, over time. But there are things about the end times that uh, we can look at. Um, And I believe that the end times will correlate with one of these Jewish feasts. I don't see why they wouldn't. God has set up a very precise system. I don't see why he would uh, go away from that, but I could be wrong, you know? I remember, um, you know, and we we tend to look at the end times from our own perspective, and I think every culture has done that. They've interpreted their own historical events and tried to see, does it fit with the end times, you know? But I would encourage you... um, I remember our, our former pastor Gary once saying, if you want to know, if you want to see Jesus' return, if you want to know when is this coming, don't look at here in the United States necessarily. Look to Israel. Look what's happening around Israel because there's a lot that has to do with that. So if a certain person gets elected president or something, don't be like, it's the Antichrist, it's the end times or anything like that. That's ridiculous. But one of the things, one of the things that um, one of the things that Bill made mention of, and I'm glad, and I'm glad he did. He talked about how many people are seeing some of these events that are happening in history right now in our current time, and are saying maybe this is the end. And he he mentioned the Ebola virus, and 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 about that virus that wipes out a lot of the earth, and that perhaps that is. The one thing that I've been thinking about lately is I've been thinking about the persecution of the church. And how severe it's been. And how terrible it's been with this Islamic state and some of these other uh, radical groups, particularly coming from uh, Islam, that are destroying and slaughtering Christians. I was looking for pictures uh, to use and the images are absolutely horrific. I mean, it's just, it's, it's devastating. And I don't think we really get uh, an understanding of it as full as it is. But one of the things I was, I was thinking about as I was, I, was, I was reading about the Islamic State and, and what they're doing to Christians, I thought about something that I, that's in Revelation. I thought about the passage that talks about the, the beast 
and the beast getting the head wound and then a greater beast coming out and being permitted to slaughter God's people. And I, I thought about that and I thought, you know, I've always thought of the Antichrist being a person, uh, thanks to the Left Behind books mainly. But, uh, <laughs> but I thought, what if it's not a person? What if it's a movement? What if it's a religion? What if it's not a person? What if it's the sons of Ishmael, once again, waging war against the sons of Isaac and of God? So as I was doing some research, I came across something very, very interesting. I want to share it with you. Keep an open mind. Do some research yourself. But I thought this was fascinating. It's about a five-minute video. Um, but he's talking about, it's a, I'll, I'll preface this, the guy who's going to talk, he is a, now, one guy, the guy in the suit, is kind of an end times fanatic, so I'm always like, oh, yeah, you know, that type of thing. But the, guy, the other guy that's going to talk, he is a former Palestinian uh, terrorist, and he converted to Christianity and left that. And, he, he's, um, and so he, li- listen to what he says. They're, they're talking about the number 666. This is, this is fascinating. There's been so many prognostications and so many things said about the mark of the beast. And we've all heard it, and we've all probably taught it. You know, I mean, I've written scripts on, you know, microchips, and that's real big right now, and all this kind of thing. But when I saw your explanation in your book of this, it was just so staggering to me. And I included, as you know, a few things from your teaching in my book. But you can explain it far better than I. Will you take a few minutes and just give us your understanding of this because it's going to be so enlightening to so many people. It's chi, psi, and stigma yes. in the original language. Yes, what they think it is. Yes. They didn't know what these symbols were. So they thought they were Greek symbols. Then they began to evolve into, let's see, what do these symbols really mean? Why would there be three Greek symbols into the text? Why would God put three Greek symbols as a mystery? Well, God is not an author of mysteries, by the way. His yoke is easy. What they thought were symbols were in reality a different script than even the Greek. God is not interested in gamatria. Gamatria is the process of adding numerals regarding names. Maybe you take Hillary Clinton. H is number is this and you know and then you add it up see if Hillary Clinton means 666 and maybe she's the beast. Maybe it's Gorbachev, so you know, then Gorbachev, and you add 666. Gematria was a process that was used in witchcraft. God is not interested in this Gematria stuff. Okay? So this developed, and then the translation started to put down 666, because they thought it was about the Gematria. But if you look at the Codex Sinaiticus and the different codexes, they don't have 666. They got these symbols. Some even translated these symbols as 616. But it's not. When I first saw the Codex Vaticanus, I was literally shocked. Because I could read the text. It was Arabic. And as you, as I look at it, it had these, what, what thought these symbols. This, and this, in a very kind of circular way, you know. And then you had this symbol. All right? Now this is an Arabic word. You can film it and ask an Arab, what is that word? Bism, in the name of. And this word, you can ask any Arab what that word is. 
Bism Allah, in the name of Allah, was on that badge that people put in their foreheads as John documented what he saw on the godly video. God showed him. And that will be the symbol of Islam, which is the two swords. That is a symbol in Saudi Arabia. It's a symbol of Islam from the yawns of time. As a matter of fact, if you don't want to believe me, I urge you to uh, watch a movie called Kingdom of Heaven. I don't like the movie, the outcome of the movie that Salah Haddin was a nice guy and the Crusades were the bad guys and that kind of thing. When he's sitting in a tent talking to the king, you'll see at some point in time, pause it when you see Salah Haddin and his men with these badges on their arms. Because it says on the right arm, the arm is dexios. Dexios means arm and not specifically hand. The word for mark is karagma, Greek, which means badge of servitude. It's a literal badge, all right? Made out of paper, etching, cloth, that is put on the forehead, and on it is several things. It could be the name of the beast, the mark of the beast, the the, the multitude of the beast, and being the name of the beast is the Islamic declaration they already put on their foreheads. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, or it will have Bismillah on it, and it will have the mark of the beast, it could be the crescent moon itself, all kinds of flavors that shows allegiance to the Antichrist. In fact, even the Prophet Muhammad ordered, I have it with me here, there it is, Muhammad the Prophet of Islam declared, Allah will save a man from my nation above all men in the day of judgment. When they open the registers, and the register will be as far as you can see with your sins. And then he is asked, are there any excuses for your sins? And he says, no, Lord. Do you have any excuses? He says, no. And then the Lord will tell him, you have only one good deed that you have done. And he will bring out a badge on it. And it says, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. And then by this, he will enter paradise. In other words, that badge will rescue the Muslim to enter into the kingdom of his heaven. Where that, in reality, will enter him into eternal damnation. It's so clear. All the things that is going on with Islam, it is so clear as a whistle. The reversal of what you believe is what they believe. The antithesis of the Bible is what they believe. So isn't that, isn't that fascinating? And I think about that and I think, man, are, is this really the mark of the beast? And, and I, I was just so fascinated when he was talking about it. It's like maybe John was writing the script that he saw and we kind of printed it out into Greek numbers because it looks like a Greek number. And so many people around the world are wearing these badges and the idea that they could, be, this, this was, is what saves them, is what they believe. This is their true righteousness of what saves them. It's really kind of even haunting to think about. And you might say, well, wait a second. I've read the books. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, Justin, because uh, we, according to the Gospel of LaHay and Jenkins, <laughs> the church is raptured before the time of the tribulation. 
Well, I think there's a gazillion views of the rapture and if the rapture happens and when it happens and pre-trib, post-trib, whatever. I mean, you might even have your own personal idea. I had a professor in college that said, how dare we interpret the Bible this way? That it's so insulting to other believers. And you know, take this a little bit with a grain of salt, but he made sense because he said, you know, this, if you look at Revelation, there's a couple of ways to look at it. You can look at it as this is the end times and this is what, exactly what's going to happen in the end times. There's also kind of a narrow view of it that this was written to seven churches, seven specific churches, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Ephesus, seven churches who were being persecuted by 10 Roman emperors. Talked about the 10 kings in Revelation, the 10 Roman emperors that just slaughtered these Christians left and right. And to say to them, it's okay, you'll be raptured before this is over, right? That, that didn't happen. And throughout history, Throughout history, there have been numbers of uh, times when Christians have been slaughtered by people wearing badges of allegiance to whatever political uh, army or whatever religion. So in one sense, it, it sort of has a universal look to it. I don't know about you, but when I see the images of these, these believers in Iraq and Iran and Pakistan and um, and Palestine, and all of these other places being persecuted. I want to do something to help them. I wish there was something I could do more than just pray for them. I wish I could, could do something. And, and, what I, and the reason why I want to bring this up is because I think this, whether or not this is the end times that we are living in, there is persecution happening. There is a false antithesis of what we believe, a false religion and antichrist that is rising up against the church. And Sukkot and Revelation chapter 7 is a promise to us and a reminder to us that that is not the end, that God has a greater purpose and a greater plan. So when I read these words in Revelation chapter 7, I am renewed with hope. And this is the encouragement for any one of us not just for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted, who are being kicked out of their homes, but also for any of us who are dealing with intense tribulation even here in our midst. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. He will tabernacle with them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So as we think about Sukkot, let me just encourage you that it is a reminder for us of a time when God's people wandered, wondering what food would come next, when the suffering might end, when they would enter their final home. But it's a reminder as well that one day, one day, we will be together with the Lord in paradise. 
Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.